you'll turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 8, and we'll begin in verse 18, and while you're turning there, uh, solos like Gina's remind me and should remind us of what a joy it is that God has given various talents to various people and brought us together into one body, because if you had to listen to me sing, you wouldn't have been applauding. And if I were in charge of passion play costumes, nobody would come to that play, and I could go on. It is good that God brings us together into one body under his word. Would you read with me in Romans 8, beginning in verse 18? I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, Grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. As you put those symbols away, would you once again take a copy of God's word? turn or scroll to Romans 8, and the three paragraphs that Leo read for us. The third of those paragraphs will be next week's text, Lord willing, as we look at how the Holy Spirit helps us in our praying. Today's text is the first two paragraphs, Romans 8, verses 18 through 25. On the 50th anniversary of the Normandy invasion of um, the Allied forces, beginning that great battle to liberate Europe from Nazism, most television networks did some kind of retrospective on that big day in history. And, and one of those programs featured two American soldiers who had been part of the Normandy invasion, back-to-back -back interviews with these men. The first man was a Marine who had been part of the landing on Omaha Beach. And he remembered coming up the beach and witnessing the carnage everywhere, friends dying, explosions, confusion, and thinking, we're going to lose. And then right after him, they interviewed 
a man who had been part of the U.S. Army Air Corps and had been in a reconnaissance plane over the battlefield, and he too saw the carnage on the beach. Uh, but he also saw how the Marines were, in fact, making progress, and he saw how the paratroopers were penetrating behind enemy lines and saw how effective the Allied aerial bombardment was and thought, we're going to win. In today's text, the Apostle Paul takes us up above the battlefield and helps us see that despite the fact that we are still at war, despite the fact that we Christians, the Church of Jesus Christ, still suffer, we're going to win. We're going to win. After the battle, victory. After the groaning, glory. I consider, verse 18 says, that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Glory is a hard word to define. It's probably easier to picture it. Glory is an Olympic athlete who, after years of disciplined effort and training, receives a gold medal while her national anthem plays and her family watches proudly from the stands. Glory is an invalid who, after months of difficult, painstaking therapy, walks out of the hospital on a warm spring day. Glory is William Wilberforce, who, after years in Parliament fighting for the liberation of slaves and the end of the slave trade in the British Empire, hears finally that his bill has passed and sits there with tears streaming down his face as Parliament gives him a standing ovation. Glory is God's people, raptured or resurrected with perfect bodies on a perfect earth, living life as God meant it to be lived in fellowship with himself forever and ever. There is a mansion and streets of gold where you belong, we heard sung. That's glory. <laughs> Paul says that I consider our present sufferings are not even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. If Paul had led a more comfortable life, we might be able to dismiss this verse by saying, well, it's easy for you to say. <laughs> but, in fact... In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul reminds us that he was beaten with rods, received 39 lashes more than once, was in prison frequently, flogged severely, stoned, shipwrecked. He spent a night and a day in the open sea, in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from his own countrymen, from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false brothers. He has labored and gone without sleep, known hunger and thirst, and gone without food, been cold and naked, and besides everything else, he says, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches." And yet, in that same letter, he says what he says here in Romans 8. Our light and momentary troubles. 
are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. The glory was so heavy, so substantial, so real, so sure, so precious, that Paul could endure the groaning. He didn't think it was even worth comparing with the glory that awaits God's people when God's purposes for this age are accomplished and the age of glory dawns. Not only did Paul and not only do we look forward to that day, so in some sense does the non-human creation. Did you hear that in verse 19? The creation waits in eager, eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed in all their glory. Paul's vision in Romans is bigger than individual salvation. It's even bigger than what God is doing with Jews and Gentiles, the larger story in Romans. Paul's vision embraces the entire cosmos, the whole created order waits eagerly. His word here is one that pictures outstretched neck, craned neck, expecting that day when God's children will be revealed in all their glory. You see, there's a connection between us being all God means for us to be and the creation being all that God means for it to be. Sometimes that connection is direct and immediate. When we are, for example, responsible stewards of the environment, creation shines. But when we are greedy and irresponsible, creation suffers. Somebody said, ecological garbage is only the outward sign of moral garbage piled up in the hearts of men. But even more fundamental than, than things like that is the story told in Genesis 3. You remember that. God said to his sinning creatures, Adam and Eve, cursed is the ground on account of you. Now instead of the whole planet being a beautiful garden, the, the earth would yield thorns and thistles death, because God did not want the creation to be a hospitable place for rebellious humans. God intends that the earth will be a hospitable place for glorified humans when our salvation is complete, when the sons of God are revealed in all their glory. Verse 20 where the creation was subjected to frustration. Frustration because it doesn't live up to its potential, what God meant for it to be. Not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. That's God. The world in its brokenness is that way because it was God's choice. In hope, the end of verse 20, Genesis 3 is not the end of the story. In Revelation, we read of a creation restored, heaven on earth. 
Creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. No more death. No more sickness. No more pain anywhere on this perfected planet. One Sunday morning, a man woke up about 5 o'clock. His wife and daughter were still asleep when he went downstairs, brewed a cup of coffee, and started reading the uh, Sunday paper, which for you young people is the way news used to be delivered. It was a printed object. It included ads and comic strips as well as news stories rolled up in a rubber band. The Sunday version was bigger than the Monday through Saturday version. He started reading this uh, newspaper and had only gotten into a couple paragraphs when his um, five-year-old daughter came down the stairs. He said, honey, go back to bed. She said, I'm not tired. He said, but it's too early for you to be up. I want you to go back to bed and try to sleep a little bit more. But daddy, I'm not tired. Well, he really wanted to have a little alone time with his coffee and his newspaper, so he, um, he, he came up with an idea he had seen in the paper a map of the world, so he tore it out and got out a pair of scissors and cut up this map of the world into little pieces and uh, gave her the pile and uh, a thing of scotch tape and said, here, uh, you go in the other room and put the world back together and then come and show me when you're done. And he settled down with his coffee and his paper again and, and in almost no time she came back in with the whole world put back together. She's five years old. He wondered, how did she do it so fast? He asked her, how did you do it so fast? She said, Daddy, it was easy. On the other side of the page, there was a picture of a man. And if you get the man right, you get the world right. I think Paul would like that story. Because he says, God intends to get men right, and then the world will be right. Creation, participating in the glory of the children of God. Not yet, though. (laughs) Verse 22 We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. An earthquake that kills thousands is creation groaning. An oil spill is creation groaning. A little bunny rabbit screaming under the claws of the hawk is creation groaning. Jennifer and I love the BBC series, Planet Earth, Blue Planet, Human Planet. Beautiful, beautiful photography, well done. But it's also somewhat sobering. On on Blue Planet, there's an episode that just brings what Paul is saying kind of home to you because um, medium-sized fish eat little fish and big fish eat the medium-sized fish and bigger fish eat the big fish. It's it's all kill, kill, kill. This This is creation right now. Whole show depends on killing. Well, that's one reason that atheist skeptic Richard Dawkins explains the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil or good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. He doesn't see the glory, but he. He does hear 
the groaning of creation. Uh, not only so, verse 23, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. First fruits were the beginnings of harvest that gave people reason to believe that the fuller harvest was just around the corner. And we have the first fruits of our eventual glorification. The Holy Spirit of God has come into our lives and has given us hope and forgiveness and motivation and a sense of purpose and the privilege of prayer and help in prayer and, and so on. But it's not the whole harvest yet. We're still sometimes wretched, as Paul puts it in, verse seven, in chapter 7, wretched over our sin. We still inhabit a, a sin-cursed world and sin-cursed body, and, and we groan, sometimes literally. The knees aren't what they used to be. Back, neck, eyes. Some of us groan getting out of a chair. We groan, where did I put my glasses this time? And we groan over what's wrong inside. We long for the day when we'll no longer be selfish, petty, bitter, impatient, self-righteous, irritable. Oh, God, we groan. Why, why is it so hard for me to pray? Why don't I love you the way you deserve to be loved? Body and soul, I long for you. We meant what we sang earlier. I want to see you. And yet we do so much to get in the way of that vision of God. So physically and spiritually, we want to be whole forever. Christian on the East Coast groans physically and spiritually. He says, I'm crippled with Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS, which is a progressive and fatal neurological illness. In the eight years I've had ALS, it has taken my voice and robbed me of the use of my limbs. It has forced my wife and me out of our lovely home. I desire a healthy body, and God promises me a body that is powerful, incorruptible, glorious, and spiritual. I desire a home that's beautiful and spacious, and his son is preparing such a home for me in the city whose builder is God. I desire a world without crime, lies, violence, and he promises me a world in which righteousness dwells. I desire to be with those I love, and he promises that I will be caught up together with them forever. I desire an end to my sorrow, and he promises fullness of joy in his presence. I desire a heart so filled with love that there's no room for sin, and he promises to make me like Jesus when I'm in heaven. I desire a ministry. And he promises that I will serve him eternally. I desire a voice with which to praise him. And he promises that I will sing before his throne. Most of all, I desire to see him. And he promises I will always behold his face. He will keep his promise to give me the desires of my heart. This desiring 
this groaning is not pointless. It is, as Paul writes, the pains of childbirth (laughs) that lead to something. Those pains lead somewhere. Glory! (laughs) Henri now tells a parable of faith and hope. He imagines twins, a brother and a sister, talking to each other in their mother's womb. The sister says, I believe there's life after birth. The brother protests, no, no, this is all there is. This dark, cozy place, and we have nothing else to do but cling to the cord that feeds us. And the little girl insists, no, there must be something more than this dark place. There must be something, a place with light where there's freedom to move. And she still couldn't convince her brother, and so she said hesitantly, uh, I have something else to say. I'm afraid that you won't believe that either, but I think there's a mother. Her brother becomes furious. A mother, he shouts. What are you talking about? I've never seen a mother. Neither have you. Who put that idea in your head? Look, I've told you, this place is all we have. Why do you always want more? It's really not such a bad place after all. Let's be content. The sister is overwhelmed by her brother's response, and for a while she doesn't dare to say anything more, but then she couldn't really let go of this, and she had only her twin brother to talk to, so she said, do you feel these squeezes every once in a while? Kind of unpleasant. Sometimes even painful. Well, yes, he said, what about it? She says, well... I think that these squeezes are there to get us ready for another place. Better than this one, where we'll see our mother face to face. Don't you think that's exciting? It seems to me that atheist Dawkins is like the twin brother. He thinks it's nonsense to imagine another world knows about the squeezes, groans with the rest of us, but doesn't realize that they are intended to move us into another world. But we can choose to live in hope. Verse 24. In this hope, we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? Hope, hope dominates this text six times in two paragraphs. Verse 20, God subjected the creation to frustration in hope. Four times in verse 24, and then in verse 25. But if we hope for what we don't yet have, we wait for it patiently. Patiently, because we know that after the groaning comes glory. I started this message with a a World War II story. Here's another one. A Glasgow professor, MacDonald, and a Scottish chaplain both jumped out of their plane, had to abandon their plane because it was shot down, and parachuted and landed behind German lines. 
They were put in a, a prison camp where a high barbed wire fence divided the Americans and the British. MacDonald was housed with the Americans and the Scottish chaplain was housed with the Brits. And the Germans really did a lot to keep the two sides from communicating with one another. But every day when they had a little bit of yard time, MacDonald and the chaplain would meet briefly, passing each other at the uh, fence and share um, tidbits of news in the old Gaelic language, which was indecipherable to the Germans. And what the, the German captors didn't know is that the Americans had a little homemade radio, something more precious than food and cigarettes in a prison camp. So they were able to get some news from the outside world. One day, that radio broadcast the news that the German high command had surrendered, that the war was over. Word had not gotten to the prison camp yet, but um, that day, as they passed at the fence, MacDonald passed on the news to the chaplain and then watched the chaplain go into the British barracks, and a moment later, the barracks erupted in cheers. And the prison camp was transformed. Prisoners laughed and joked and smiled at the guards. They even laughed at the dogs. Until three days later, the prison system got the word that the war was over, and in the middle of the night, the guards all ran off, leaving the place unlocked. And in the morning, the Americans and the British walked out free men. But they'd really been free three days earlier. You and I are living in that interim three days. Still some suffering to endure, Paul says. He's very realistic. If Paul were to say Christians don't suffer, we would have to write him off as hopelessly out of touch. But we have been told by someone who knows that victory is right around the corner. Bow with me in prayer. Oh God, help us to believe it. Some days the skies are so gray and the suffering so real compared to the printed Bible that it's hard for us to embrace authentically, existentially, to really believe. Romans 8. But the same Spirit who gave Paul such confidence and hope now indwells us, and we're going to trust that part of the first fruits of the Spirit that he writes about will be a buoyant confidence that will carry us through these interim three days until we walk out of this broken world, this prison camp, into glory. And if there's even one or two people here this morning or who are tuned in online 
who especially need this word of encouragement today, then I trust it will have been worth the preparation and worth our time together. I pray that in Jesus' name and for his sake and let all his people say,